Good morning and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter audio version. I am your host, Dr. M, and we will be talking about issues 32 and 34 today from volume 11. And we're going to go through some information specifically regarding school and COVID, cognitive dissonance, as well as long COVID with Epstein-Barr virus. So this will be a few disparate topics we're going to be covering this morning uh, related to some serious issues that are happening these days. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional, and it is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the development of a patient-provider relationship. All right, let's get into this. So we are going to hit on the issues related to what happened regarding school and the COVID generation, as some people are calling it. It's been more than a year, and as I had feared and many had feared, we're starting to see and feel the repercussions of the school closure pandemic phenomenon. The K-shaped recovery that is talked about much in economics and as related to the economic pandemic is also playing out similarly in the school system. Last year, private schools stayed open while public schools shuttered. Of those in public school systems, many that could afford one hired tutors to bridge the academic dysfunction of Zoom education. The gap between the rich and the poor just widened like never before, right before our eyes. And this was very reminiscent of what happened in the economic K-shaped recovery. Regardless of the intent behind the outcome, we are now here. It serves no purpose to blame teachers' unions or local governments or parents living in fear or any other publicized reason to date. We are Americans, and we must roll up our sleeves and begin the process of bridging this gap again. These children deserve our total and unwavering support. The consequences of the pandemic have left a childhood mental health nightmare in its wake. Quote, the proportion of emergency room visits related to mental health among kids 12 to 17 increased 31% from 2019 uh, to 2020, according to the CDC. Although overall suicide deaths haven't increased during the pandemic, as many had feared, teens are making more attempts. ERs have treated 50% more adolescent girls and 4% more boys for suspected suicide attempts in February and March of 2021 than in those months prior year. Diagnosis of obsessive-compulsive disorder have soared 41% among girls 12 to 18, according to a June report from Epic Health Research Network. Diagnosis of eating disorders has jumped 38% among girls and 5% among boys. This came from Shabo L. et al. 2021. So the consequences of the mental health stress would be lifelong, and they'll have lifelong implications for the success and mental health, as has been shown over and over in the studies to date. Mental stress also has profound downstream effects on metabolism and chronic elevations in cortisol, the fight-or-flight hormones that drive systemic inflammation, high blood sugar, and heart disease, also known as atherosclerosis. The children and therefore society will be paying for these failures for years and decades to come as each child struggles to regain mental health, regain physical health, and regain a functional place in society as an adult. A large percentage of American school children rely on school nutrition programs for basic nourishment. While I have major problems with our national school lunch program and quality, at least they had a consistent food source that was not all junk food. During the pandemic, our clinic witnessed a massive increase in weight gain 
among the poorest American children, likely due to secondary Zoom activity coupled to the fear of being outside and the poor nourishment. Add to this that the poorest among us tend to eat more government-subsidized, high-calorie, low-quality, standard American processed foods, and we literally have a calamity of physical health. This will, be very, this will be a very difficult situation for all of us moving forward. It is very easy for a child to gain weight and become inflamed metabolically, whereas the reversal process of this is not easy to do. Actually, it's profoundly more difficult. This article can go on and on about all this well-documented COVID-related child suffrage issues, but I would rather focus on the solutions. Over the past 40 COVID newsletters, there is a large body of evidence regarding the negative outcomes of COVID on our youth. So what are some ideas of how to change this process? One, offer to tutor a child in math, reading, or any subject that you feel confident that you can help with. There are nonprofit companies out there that can arrange these meetings. Look into your local region's nonprofit groups and sign up. Your teenage children could be great tutors as well which serves dual roles as a giver of self and a provider of a gift of knowledge. That is, to me, a beautiful option. Number two, write a letter to your state and federal officials asking them to take a hard look at children's nutrition services as we have a calorie overload and quality issue and nothing more. Sample data to add to the letter can be found on the newsletter link. You may quote any part of the document. Consider donating food or money to a local food bank that provides food to the underprivileged. Our children deserve the best of everything when it comes to school, education, nourishment, activity, and so on. We do not have a tax base issue that would preclude providing high-quality nourishment. According to the CBO, Senator uh, Budgetary Office, the U.S. brought in $3.5 trillion tax dollars in 2019. Couple that with the fact that over 20 years in wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which I'm not going to bring the politics of this, just straightforward how much money was spent. During that period of time, $1 trillion was spent. Yet we can't seem to find any money to increase the quality of the nourishment that we feed our best and brightest youth every day. It is unconscionable. Number three. As per Danny Benjamin and the research of other specialists, we have no reason to ever close schools again in the per- for in-person learning, as we are fully aware that masking and vaccinations are effective measures to control the spread of SARS-2. Therefore, we must resist all efforts that prevent children from being in school at the grassroots level. We cannot fall prey to fear yet again as we move forward for the betterment of our children. Consider being a big brother, number four, or big sister to an impoverished child in any capacity that you can. Just being there and supporting them will provide for incredible amounts of self-esteem growth. Number five, make sure that your children and every child that you meet or interact with knows that they are loved, heard, and made to feel safe to explore the world again. We need to tell them that COVID is not a big risk to them. We need to tell them that if they have to wear masks, it is for the common good and not based on the on risk as the science has steadfastly proven in children, especially for those under age 10. Number six, consider encouraging schools to have small groups mixing all levels of skill sets so that the children that are farther behind learn by listening to the others and collaborating together on the outcome so as not to put put them in remedial situations that could stagnate growth and make them feel less than. I think of this as a lead from the top model instead of reducing education to the lowest level of safety or stress. 
This generally falls on, excuse me, this generally fails on all accounts. Read the article in the newsletter for more information as this is very pivotal in possible change. Over my years of education, there was always a benefit to small group learning. Invariably, each person had a strength and a weakness that was pushed to its beneficial limit in the group learning setting. Truly, folks, that is something that we should be really promoting at all levels of society. Okay, section two, cognitive dissonance redo. Because it is so important to avoid the behavior and teach our children the same, I have long thought about the world of manipulating one's thoughts to maintain a wrong belief because it aligns with what the thinker wants or needs. In the field of medicine, I'm constantly amazed at the entrenched beliefs of my colleagues when they are faced with solid evidence that the belief that is held tightly is unlikely to be true. This, begin, this, excuse me, this brings me to the theory of cognitive dissonance written by Leon Festinger in 1957. The existence of dissonance, being psychologically uncomfortable, will motivate the person to try to reduce the dissonance and achieve consonance. When dissonance is present, in addition to trying to reduce it, the person will actively avoid situations and information that would increase the dissonance. What Festinger was looking at was the reality that I'm seeing playing out in medicine. I had a recent experience with an expert at a prominent university regarding eczema, food reactions, and allergic risk over time. We politely disagreed about the antecedent triggers of a large subset of the eczema patients, milk protein intolerance, and the eventual outcome that occurs following avoidance and reintroduction over time. While the story is less important than the reality that the old entrenched belief that he held so tightly was not playing out in hundreds of sequential patients in our office left him dissonant to an explanation to the why. The discussion was exactly that, a discussion of what we are seeing in real time versus some published literature from years ago. I raise this point not as proof of our correctness, but as an example of cognitive dissonance in medicine. The subsequent choices made because of dissonance can and do have negative impacts on patients. When I was a junior partner at Salisbury Pediatrics, I routinely told sad and distraught mothers that their colicky infant had a gut-brain connection problem. The prevailing theory at the time, fast forward a few years, and we have a realization that these children were really suffering from cow milk protein intolerance. I lament the many mothers that received my poor knowledge in those early years and the ones that will in the future for other reasons. However, I was taught early on in my training by great physicians to hold tight to your truths until someone proves them wrong and then switch them overnight. Medicine and life in general are on a learning curve, and that is constant. Teachers blessed us, students, with the tools to avoid cognitive dissonance by accepting change, understanding that mistakes will happen, and that we are always learning and growing. After finishing another phenomenal Peter Tia podcast, number 130, where Dr. Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson discussed the further evolution of Festinger's work and and modern analysis of it, I thought that I would discuss one of their examples to highlight this theory, as I believe that it is critical to your child's growth and evolution. They use a poignant example of the 1989 Central Park Park, New York City jogger case, where teenage youths were wrongly convicted and served jail time for a decade before the true perpetrator of the case, who was in jail in 2001, confessed and was a DNA match. The prosecuting attorney at the time, Mrs. Fairstein, refused to vacate the convictions despite the overwhelming evidence against the original decision. This is most egregious example of cognitive dissonance. Mrs. Fairstein, 
was so steadfast in her misguided belief that original case was solid that she refused to see the most blatant refuting evidence. To admit that she was wrong would, have been into pain, would be too painful as these boys languished in jail for years based on her decisions. Thus, she became cognitively dissonant. This is a classic psychological safety mechanism. We don't want this to be the future for us and our children. Accepting responsibility, course correcting, living for the now, not repeating the same errors, and so on, are critical to sanity and growth. This is exactly the point from which we must teach our children to hold truths tightly until evidence to the contrary proves the other and better theory, proof, or reality. When we have humility as parents, we tell our children and loved ones that we are making the best decision from a position of authority based on today's data, but we reserve the right to change based on better data. This is exactly how we want our children to view the world in the future. If we always held to old truths, we would have no new theories, no advancement, and no growth. Section three, Paul's Doxmo Pearls from the podcast. That's uh, Women and Children First podcast number one. Here are a few of them. Number one, it is a terrible mistake for parents to underestimate their influence on their children. They are paying attention and learning from us, through watching and direct communication. We should use this pulpit to help them at all times. Number two, parents create the reality that their children experience. Free play, increased outdoor time, structured travel, and event experiences, or the contrary, is to give unlimited screen access, whatever food they want, and no guidance. You can tell clearly which one is better. Number three, Providing books and reading frequently to a child is like the child winning the lottery for future success. The more literacy events that occur, the higher the success of likelihood. Number four, the School of Natural Consequences teaches life lessons that are critical to future ability and success. When a child fails after trying, they are laying the foundation for future successes. Number five, prevention beats treatment every single time. The front-end work with diet, stress control, exercise, etc., will always prevent the need for medical inventions later on. These are just a few of the many pearls that will be found in that podcast. So go to the iPodcast link or docsmo.com, and you can get the Women and Children First podcast number one with Dr. Paul Smolin and listen to the entirety of the, of the subject. This completes the tour through volume 11, episode number 32, now let's switch over to volume 11, episode number 34. Long COVID and its associations with Epstein-Barr virus, otherwise known as EBV, reactivation. So this is a really important topic for clinicians as well as parents to understand. So we're going to look a little bit deeper into this one. Long COVID, or what appears to be post-infectious inflammatory issues, may now be a consequence of another infection. What are the symptoms of long COVID and when do they occur? Let's get a baseline. From the Center for Disease Control, some people are experiencing a range of new or ongoing symptoms that can last weeks or months after first being infected with a virus that causes COVID-19, SARS-2. Unlike some of the other types of post-COVID conditions that only tend to occur in people who have had severe illness, these symptoms can happen to anyone who has had COVID-19, even if the illness was mild or if they had no initial symptoms. Symptoms can begin weeks after the infection. People commonly report experiencing different combinations of the following. Difficulty breathing, shortness of breath, 
tiredness, fatigue, symptoms that get worse after physical and mental activities, brain fog, which is difficulty thinking, cough, chest or stomach pain, headache, fast beating or pounding heart, joint or muscle pain, pins, needles, feelings, diarrhea, sleep problems, fever, dizziness on standing, rash, mood changes, change in smell or taste, change is in period cycles. There's a lot of side effects here. In the journal Pathogens, Dr. Gold notes that at a 6.7x or fold increase in EBV reactivation in long COVID patients based on antibody titer measurements. We do know, excuse me, we do not know if EBV is driving the long COVID so much as a reflection of the inadequate immune T helper cell activity that should be present in immune solvent individuals attempting to clear a viral pathogen. It has been shown in different studies over the past year that individuals with poor T-cell activity, Th1, natural killer cells, NK, and poorly polarized macrophages, MAC2, are at increased risk for worse comorbidity of COVID and or mortality outcomes. That's from Gold et al. 2021. The article can be found in the newsletter. Let's look at a little bit of the science. My friend, Dr. Sam Yannick writes, we could imagine the patient's Th1 system becoming suppressed in several ways, leading to an expansion of EBV burdens, even in a patient who had managed to eradicate SARS-CoV-2 from their system. One, GI or respiratory involvement of COVID-19 would be expected to increase epithelial inflammatory activation, driving Th2-promoting cytokines at the expense of Th1, which are the type that kill the virus. Two, Stress chemistry from the biological and psychological stresses of COVID-19 infection would be expected to induce apoptosis, otherwise known as programmed cell death, of Th1 cells and NK cells, again, messing up the ability to kill the virus. And number three, inflammatory effects from COVID-19 would be expected to upregulate MDSCs, otherwise known as myeloid-derived suppressor cells, driving down again the Th1 response. In this third option, we would expect to see a high transforming growth factor beta level in the blood. There are likely plenty of other ways to get low Th1 given the moving parts involved in SARS-CoV-2 infection. Okay, let me break down this paragraph. What Dr. Yannick is really trying to say is that our immune system's natural polarization to fight different types of infections can be compromised by the invading SARS-2 infection or other antecedent lifestyle-based factors which we will look at below, or the combination. The virus itself is triggering immune dysregulation by causing significant mental and physical stresses coupled to inflammation that drives an abnormal immune polarity, driving down viral suppression ability by reducing the function of Th1 cells, NK cells, and M1 macrophage activity. The precursor risk tied to the infection response can drive this immune viral interface problem leading to reactivation of herpes viral infections, further chronically taxing the system, leading to what looks like long COVID or chronic fatigue. If a patient is suffering from COVID but survives, it is highly possible and actually likely that the immune system was so tasked fighting SARS-2 virus that the ability to tackle the indolent, ever-present Epstein-Barr virus in their system was compromised, allowing for resurgence and chronic fatigue state to ensue. This is hypothetical only, but highly plausible based on the fact that SARS-2 does suppress immune viral killing capacity and herpes viruses sit dormant in many others waiting for a time for the stress to reactivate from dormancy. 
There is significant data out there that folks that have lower white blood cell counts, lymphopenia, and other immune viral attacking irregularities are more likely to die from COVID. And therefore, it is highly likely that and it's a sequential gradation. So as you go down in the ability to fight a virus, you are more likely to have a worse outcome if you do not die and then therefore back to a solvent system. EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, is known to infect and become indolent in over 90% of us as Americans. The measurement of a biomarker is not conclusion of cause and effect. However, there are patients that appear to have long COVID and feel well when they are on antiviral medicines that theoretically contain EBV's growth. More time and data will answer these questions, yet I'm aligned with this physiological premise that our stress biochemistry, nutritional biochemistry, and microbiome are show somehow driving a dysregulated immune reaction and response leading to a chronic brain fog and fatigue state that we are calling long COVID. If this data pans out to be real and associated with the symptoms as seen in these patients, then we need to spend time working to optimize immune function, specifically T helper type 1 cell, natural killer cell, and macrophage type 1 activity in all of us. The question remains now for the explanation, how do we do that? In the basic science literature, we see that hyperglycemia impairs immune surveillance and killing mechanisms allowing viral expansion and subsequent problems. We know that diabetic patients have a compromised pathogen killing capacity, Geis et al., Barbuti et al., those can be looked at in the newsletter. High volumes of saturated fat are known to trigger immune dysregulation via multiple pathways, including pattern recognition receptors, T helper cells, and inflammasomes, Valdoin et al. However, there are many genetic and epigenetic variables that may make these dietary immune generalizations only exactly that. There has been much study of the mental, physical, and environmental stressors affecting immune viral function. It is my opinion that the human immune system was set up to respond to pathogens robustly based on the exposure and normal existence. For thousands of years, we were exposed to a variety, excuse me, we were exposed to varied food availability and type. Thus, it would make complete sense to me that the immune system would work well in many types of dietary patterns, as well as periods of starvation or short periods of excess. I think that the chronic starvation and chronic caloric excesses are the breakpoints for immune dysregulation. The basic science literature is reasonable to draw these conclusions, especially as it pertains to diabetes mellitus and, in my mind, insulin resistance, IR, as well. Remember that insulin resistance is a downstream effect of chronic exposure to excess fats following followed by excess sugars. If you have not listened to my piece on insulin resistance, it is from a few weeks ago. It is audio casted and in newsletter form. It is really, really probably the most critical piece I've written in the past five years. It gets through the, the, the seriousness of the basic science literature has shown us how important reversing insulin resistance is as a human culture. Okay, moving on. This modern human shift in macronutrient intake has stressed the metabolic systems and therefore the immunologic systems to the point of poor pathogen recognition, surveillance, and killing capacity. I believe that we have solid epidemiologic data that to support this contention as well. Over 96% of COVID-related deaths were in individuals with deranged metabolism from poor dietary choices leading to four diseases, diabetes, coronary artery disease, hypertension, and obesity. 
If your child or anyone that you know is suffering from long COVID, focus on the basic lifestyle principles that impair viral surveillance and killing. This will allow for a more robust immune response to the herpes viruses that may be underlying the symptoms of brain fog, fatigue, and autonomic instability. The reversal of this problem appears to be a long, long process as the immune system does not change in a dime despite the rapidity of cellular turnover. Discuss the use of antiviral medicines and other targeted supplements to enhance immune activity with your provider if long COVID is a problem for you or your family member. Mental stress is a major driver of immune dysfunction. Focus heavily on stress reduction methods as discussed in the past, coupled to therapy, conscious positive verbalization about self, and other techniques. Make sure that sleep is a cherished healing event that is allowed to happen on the schedule nightly. There will never be a more important thing for you to focus on than your sleep and your mental health. Finally, I think that time-restricted feeding events or ketogenic diets may play a role here in the right candidate that is not too cachectic or struggling overall with food body image issues. Very important to search for clues as to why so many people are suffering from prolonged post-COVID symptoms. This is just the beginning. Section two, I have recently had a few conversations regarding talented and gifted children with a few parents that were in praise mode too often regarding a child's gifts where they were unaware of the downstream effects of such a parenting behavior. Effort and praise of effort is a key to success according to Carol Dweck, a Stanford psychologist. Many times in the past few decades, I have brought up this topic of effort and resilience. Carol Dweck is a muse for future teachings. In her book, Mindset, she lays out the case for the effort and praise theory over the praise for ability theory. She has studied children for years and noted that children that are praised for effort routinely outperform their peers who are praised for their smarts. Why would this be? According to Dr. Dweck, when you train an elementary school student to accept praise for their effort, they will spend more time persevering on a task even in the face of abject failure. She calls it attribution theory. The theory is concerned with a person's ability to judge the root cause of events and their behavior. When children do not ascribe an attribution to a failed event, they are more likely to find another path to success. If they ascribe a belief that they are not smart enough, then they will quit earlier. We often believe that the ability is the root of success, and this is true to a point of difficulty. When it comes becomes hard, ability is a trap. Perseverance becomes the route to success. Think of the child that excels in sports and does not put in much effort. When other kids catch up in skill and the game gets more technical, the child will fall on the false sense of ability where they need, where excuse me, where what he or she needed is desire and effort. Now I go back to the parenting programming. We tell our kids that they are great and talented and we do it often. Our kids feel empowered while it is easy and then start to falter and get anxious that their power is not at all great. Dweck's research shows that our children need no prompting about their natural ability, but instead need effort and resilience praise. I think of the great flops in pro sports and surmise that they may have had parental praise to a fault and the difficulty of the upper level sports undermine their confidence. Praise effort often and leave talent to excuse, excuse me and leave the talent piece to the peer group. Why do siblings fight? Is it a rite of passage, a dominance paradigm, 
a battle for parents' love, what? Poe Bronze and Ashley Merweather had a lot to say about this reality in Nurture Shock, a great book. It turns out that siblings fight on average 3.5 hours a day or 40 times while awake. It is roughly 10 minutes of every hour. Ouch. That's a lot of squabbling. Now we know why parents feel stressed at the end of the average day. Dr. Gany DeHart noted that siblings said seven times as many negative comments toward a sibling as opposed to a friend. Why? Siblings don't go anywhere, whereas a friend can reject you for your statements and isolate you from your inexperience that you crave. Age, spacing, and gender have little effect on the frequency and severity of fights. Dr. Lori Kramer has studied sibling relationships for decades. The sum total of her research is that siblings will fight and that the quality of fighting persists in a similar way throughout the siblings' lives into adulthood. This is a bad thing if they fight like cats. However, her research has also shown that the quality and happiness of the relationship between siblings was determined by the quality of the positive interactions. Doing chores and projects together can foster teamwork and conflict resolution. She promotes a resolution task called Stop, Think, and Talk. Essentially, learn to resolve the issue verbally as siblings. The positive playtime, in effect, balances out the negative fighting moments. This is eerily similar to, the mar to marriage. Dr. Kramer has a six-hour training program for children that aims to improve the relationship. Quote, fewer fights are the consequence of teaching the children proactive skills of initiating play on terms they can both enjoy. It's conflict prevention, not conflict resolution. End quote. I often tell my children to work it out and enjoy the playtime. Dr. Kramer encourages parents not to fix their children's problems and fights. In this way, they learn conflict resolution. A parent can facilitate a solution but not be the solution. Boy, this sounds so interesting and so similar to things we've talked about. Kramer also went on to show that the best predictor of sibling happiness was the oldest child's relationship with his best friend. If the older child had a fair and balanced relationship with his best friend, then the quality of future sibling dyad was likely to be good. Boil it all down to two things. Giving kids the tools to have a good relationship with a friend will bolster the sibship in the future. Number two, parents should not be in the conflict resolution business. End of story. Okay, folks, that ends Spa Audiocast Newsletter, Volume 11, Issues 32 and 34. I hope you enjoyed today's readings. Have a great day, and remember to hug those kids.